Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today I'm with a Grammy-nominated and Juno-nominated producer. He also has worked with artists such as Logic and Trippy Red. He's a platinum-selling producer as well here in our very own Pacific Northwest. It's my pleasure to have on MTK or Michael Crabtree. Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> it's a common mistake. It's okay. <laughs> I was born in an area where like Matthew and Michael were really common names. So it's oh like it's almost gosh. interchangeable at this point. That's hilarious. My bad. <laughs> yes, you're good. You're good. So you're let's good. let's start let's start at your origins though. You're originally from Missouri and you just said there's two Kansases. There's two Kansas cities. Kansas, uh, Kansas City actually uh, separates across two states. So okay. um you have the eastern side of the city or like the majority of like 75% of the cities in Missouri. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the culture is and like the cool things, the mountains and all that stuff that people associate with it. And west of the border is the Kansas side. And the best way I could describe it is Kansas side of Kansas City is Bellevue mm -hmm. and the Missouri side is Seattle. So like for people who don't know Bellevue, that's- It's very bougie. Bougie. There's okay. money, lots of money on the Kansas side. Mm -hmm. And I- I, I didn't realize that until I went back um, as an adult mm. and I'm driving around the neighbors like, man, like I always thought the Kansas side was just, but mm -hmm. it's, it's grown a lot in the last like 10 years. So wait, so you lived on the Bellevue side or the no, Seattle side? No. Okay. <laughs> I was on the other side of the tracks. I was on the other side of the tracks. I grew up in uh, Northern Kansas city, uh, okay. North of the river. Northland boys is what, what we're referred to as. Cool. And what is that? What is that a uh, city known for? Um, Kansas city's mostly known for barbecue. Okay. Um, it's great. Um, still, like, it's the standard, in my opinion. We are known for a healthy jazz scene, lots of jazz music there. Fountains are a huge part and a big part of the identity. Like water yeah. fountains? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Ma massive water fountains. Really intricate ones. Really cool. And beyond that, uh, the identity of the city is very closely tied to sports. Okay. So uh, the Kansas City Chiefs Got and it. the Kansas City Royals are a huge deal out there. And are you a sports guy? Sports entertainment. I like pro wrestling. Okay. Hey, there we go. <laughs> I'm bringing Mike a little bit close, just a little bit. Okay, cool. There, there we go. Um, I just, do you know Defy Wrestling? I do. I've never been though. Oh, fuck. I just got a, I guess it's a trial run and I feel like I could say this, but like, um, I'm going to start filming their Defy Wrestling podcasts at awesome. the, because they do the on-site recordings. So wow. they asked me to do like a trial run. So yeah, hopefully that goes well. I know that, um, uh, some local Seattle guys, uh, Geo from the Scholars, or mm -hmm. Prometheus Brown and Grinch have gone. Yeah, they actually performed in the ring. Oh shit! They did a dope. song in the ring uh, called D'Lo Brown, which is a wrestler from when we were growing up. Mm. And yeah, so they're they're really into it. We're all into wrestling. And yeah, because you you produced for Geo. Have you produced uh, produced for uh, Grinch? Grinch also. Oh yeah, I've okay, known yeah, Grinch yeah. for almost twenty years. That's right. Um, I did a song called "I Can Try." I did a song. Um, called Still Tipsy off his last album. Yeah, we've been working forever. I've known him for a very, very long time. That's wild. Yeah. That's cool because you're kind of like an ex example of like where you don't have to live in the the mecca of whatever area you're in to make a name for yourself. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And I think a big part of that is that's going to continue mm -hmm. and it's going to get more and more um, pronounced in the scene because of Seattle becomes cost prohibitive for people. You're going to start seeing people coming from like Federal Way and Kent and Everett and, you know, Tacoma has its own scene, but that's going to grow, you know, I imagine exponentially over the next like 10 years as Seattle really becomes something that caters to like very high end, you know, high earner type people. Mm -hmm. Seattle is very interesting to me because I'm 
still figuring out like my you know my way through Seattle and the sure. right people to connect with. But like the more I dive into Seattle, the more I feel like the more connections you have, like the easier life is in Seattle. Which that might be any city, but like to the point like. I feel like certain people get like deals on properties if they know the right person. Mm. Like I'm seeing that already with like me getting a studio mm-hmm. and I'm like, like we're at where my new studio is located, like in Pioneer Square. Like I got a crazy deal on that and I'm like, what the, but it's cause I went through a program, sure. you know? So that's a little versus if I was just like some random guy mm-hmm. walking in, but like, it's interesting how, so I don't know if that's in every city or if that's just how Seattle operates. It's every city. Yeah. Um, and it's every industry. And the only way to kind of circum- circumvent that is to be undeniable in what you provide. Mm-hmm. So um, in the situations like, well, I have the money to rent it. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do it. But a lot of the like real estate deals, being aware of property that's coming around to be sold is a big advantage for a lot of people that are like really tightly interwoven into the Seattle like community. And mm-hmm. like you or, or I who, you know, are not involved in that kind of like property ownership type thing. Yeah we're not going to have visibility into that. Yeah. Fucking, that's crazy yeah, shit. It is. And I'll keep you guys updated the more I learn about this <laughs> shit. Yeah, it's, it's Seattle. But t- just being in Seattle, like I, that's, I can only say from experience in Seattle, but there's some, I don't know, I feel like Seattle's probably like a more of a eyes wide shut city than people would like like to admit. Yeah. And it's only becoming more like that over time. Like yeah. I started coming to Seattle, like everyone from Everett and Linwood would only come to Seattle for, um, baseball and football games or the cheesecake factory yeah yeah that's like the only reasons but i started coming you know an interest of the arts and things like that and i really started coming in like 2002 or 2003 and it was a much different vibe um mm-hmm. the way i heard it is that seattle is the new los angeles portland is the new seattle and um bellingham is the new portland mm-hmm. so it's it, it's changed but you know you just kind of go with the flow and just Nothing stays the same forever, and that's okay. Yeah. So you grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. and what did you do there? Like, were you involved in music when you? Because there's a jazz scene. Yeah. No, I was. I, I moved when I was 11. Okay. Um, and really, just basic, you know, Midwest kid stuff. Um, we got into BB gun fights. Mm-hmm. Um, we played video games. We were outside and just. It was a lot of fun, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't have like a ton of money, which kind of forces your hand to be more creative and you can come up with better things to do um, yeah. without the resources. And yeah, it was fun. We had a lot of family. My mom grew up there, so we had a lot of connections from her and no arts per se, but I started to really understand and appreciate music at that point and realizing like what's interesting about this song and kind of like trying to deconstruct it um, Mm -hmm. with no like knowledge of musical theory or song structure, but still trying to kind of pinpoint what's, what makes this good. And that kind of drove my overall love and appreciation for music. It literally took me until I was, kid you not, probably, and I was already in band at this point, Mm -hmm. but it, it took me even, it took me until I was like probably, 16 or 17 to even understand what like beat counting was <laughs> <laughs> that's the most simple thing ever so like i, I guess it's like it grows on like sometimes you have to be like self-taught some people mm-hmm. are just born with that or their family is very like pushes that on to yeah. you know um on the bb gun thing i was i don't know how this happened but my so one of my friends they're um when they were growing up they're like in their i think they're in their 40s now 
they said that they surprised their brother by like shooting him with a BB gun, like him and his friends. And then his brother called the police and they got arrested for shooting BB. Like our BB gun. I thought he was trying to tell me that BB guns are illegal and you're not actually supposed to, well, illegal to shoot people with BB mm. guns. Yeah, that makes sense. But I'm like, you hear that all the time. So is that is that illegal to shoot someone with a BB gun? I would say if you were to compare the sin of shooting someone to the sin of snitching on your brother for <laughs> shooting you with a, a BB gun, <laughs> the snitching is far more egregious. Like, I remember one time we were uh, playing some Nintendo game where you were like robots who play baseball or something mm-hmm. like that. Whoever's listening to this might know. Um, and my brother just kind of got this sly look on his face and then just put the barrel right to my leg and just... And let it pop. Uh, and it went up like, it looked like a gumdrop on my leg. Uh, but we also did um, arrows without the tips. Well, So that was like, um, my brother shot me in the armpit with one of those. And that only happened once. <laughs> yeah, like, I've always had like a, an exceptional risk threshold. Mm-hmm. And as has, as my brother has as well. So, yeah, things that may be too much for others are just scratching the surface for us. And that's a Midwest thing? No, that's no. a Crabtree thing. That's a Crabtree thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a various neuroses mental health thing. <laughs> I feel like Crabtree is like a popular name in Seattle for whatever reason. Yeah. I feel like I've bit. heard it quite a few times. Also, there's that guy on the Seahawks. Who's that guy on the Seahawks? Oh, it was it? Michael Crabtree, and he was for- That's um, where I. That's why I called you, mm-hmm. I'm dead. And he was. Uh, he played for the 49ers. Oh, and so there's I a, thought it was a the lot of like There's a lot of animosity towards him. Um it's pretty popular here. There's a Crabtree family in Snohomish I've heard of. Okay. And the majority of people are from the South. Okay. And when I lived in North Carolina for a couple of years as a kid, we lived by the Crabtree Valley Mall is what it was called in Raleigh. And it blew my mind that Damn. it was this name. And there was a Crabtree and Evelyn store, which is like a soap perfume company. And I saw them there and it's like, I had no idea. But yeah, it's relatively common, but you know, still people like, kind of stop and kind of give like a second guess of the name just because it's weird yeah like most people don't have like sea spiders in their name <laughs> yeah 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 i feel like the only i think i'm like the worst sports fan ever so mm-hmm. i'm guessing i thought he was on the seahawks because 49ers and seahawks yeah. are like mm-hmm. against each other what, what are the origins of crabtree though do you know uh, i think it's england um, okay. like I went to a Renaissance festival in Mount Vernon where they explained it to me. Okay. Um, but they also gave me a lot of beer beforehand. So yeah. <laughs> I don't really remember, but yeah, it's somewhere, I think it's England and I think it's like 1400 years old, maybe. So it's not like, and it doesn't have to do with like the literal term of like a no. crab in it. But there's, there, there's a crab apples. Yeah. So I imagine it has something to do with that if I had to guess, but oh. I, I don't know for sure. Shit. Okay. That makes sense. So, and Mount Vernon is deep, but if, if you, you you lived in Everett for a while, so that yeah. kind of makes sense. I lived in Everett for like um, 20 years Yeah. and my dad lived in Mount Vernon. Got and it. so we would go up there and we'd go to the Renaissance festivals and all that kind of weird stuff. Just fun. Like basic type stuff tulip festival mm. mount vernon has a lot of flavor to it oh yeah it does have the tulip. i've missed that this year i was trying to go mm-hmm. yeah but i feel like that's a thing in seattle see i feel like seattle people like sometimes don't know anything farther than like 45 minutes away from them <laughs> yes there's a lot of culture there um when you go east towards like um like stevens pass there's mm. Matt, there's tons of stuff between there um yeah i think that we live in a state with a rainforest, with a desert, with a mountain range, with an active volcano, one of the most um, wealthy cities in the world. Yeah. 
and an ocean. And it's like, it's all within a few hours. So yeah. if you don't catch up on it or see it, that's really, that's not Washington's problem. It's, it's more like your problem. Mm-hmm. That's fair. But I also feel like, I don't know, I guess at the end of the day, you do have to do your own research. But I wish there was a way for me, at least, where I can know when more things were going on. Yes. Because like, I have no, like, my the coolest but also not that cool of an example because it's still music related mm-hmm. that I've done in the past like month or two is like when um uh on Juneteenth Talib Kweli was like down the street from my house and I was like okay. what the fuck <laughs> and he was doing like a free show and I was like wow and I I had no idea until like I heard the music right and then I looked online because I didn't know I didn't know it was him performing but yeah. I looked online and it was Talib Kweli free show wow. you know but like I, there's got to be a better way to find out what's going on in Seattle than, than like, just being within earshot of it. Yeah, but that's also a thing too, where like, li- if you live in like a neighborhood in Seattle, like Central District or something mm-hmm. like that, you're supposed to like be able to just know your community. I guess I don't know yeah. and figure things out through the community and being within proximity to what's yeah. happening. What used to be the golden standard, um, like in the 2000s, was the stranger and mm-hmm. looking at all of the um, the upcoming events and things like that. But as print media has kind of, you know, circled the drain, mm-hmm. <laughs> so to speak, uh, I don't use it. And honestly, I, I just don't come out as much as I used to. So they use, I don't have as much of a, a need to be in the know. Mm-hmm. But if you, you have a family, so I feel like you want to do like family. How do you yes. find like events like that? For mm, you? My wife. My yeah. wife is like a truffle. Well, wow. I can't say truffle pig. That's, <laughs> <laughs> she's very good at finding that stuff. Okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, she, she'll find it and she'll come up with great ideas and we'll kind of try and like figure out, you know, like with toddlers, there's like, they have like an expiration date each mm-hmm. day <laughs> and it's like, what can we do without, you know, pushing up against the guardrails of her losing her shit. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, she's very good at that and kind of like spacing it out and uh, figuring it out. But yeah, Hell yeah, just lots of family stuff. Awesome. So you said you, so you moved when you said you were 11 to where again? Uh, to Everett. So, oh, so you've been in Washington. Got it. I've been in Washington since 1994. Um, oh, I had a, for whatever reason, I had the like impression that you moved here like in your 20s or something. No, I wow. I moved here very young and my the Midwest personality has persevered through my entire time here. <laughs> it is, it still cuts through. And so to timestamp it, we moved um, the day after the white Bronco chase with OJ Simpson. Amazing. So that's the that's when we moved. And before we moved, we were looking at where to live in the Seattle area. And there was not a lot of like economic opportunity around us in, in Kansas City. So we're looking to be in this area, but also what can we find here that we could sustain ourselves with? Mm-hmm. And we found the Boeing plant in Everett. Mm-hmm. And we knew that it was like a blue collar town, probably not a huge difference from Kansas City. And we just kind of picked that on the map and we sold everything that we had. And we, my brother, my mother and I and our cat, Bob, um, mm. rest in peace, Bob. We all got to a, a Ford Festiva, um, which is a very small car. And we just drove across the country and Dang. we just rolled the dice and tried to figure it out. And you said your dad ended up moving to Washington also later on or something? Or? Yes, he was. He was released from prison in 1996 and moved cool. out here to be with us. That's wild. Mm-hmm. You guys are close. Like, is that like put a damper on your family for a while i'm guessing or what prison yeah 
Uh, no, it's great. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's like summer camp for your dad. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I'll tell people that my, my dad was on a, a government work contract. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of negatives, clearly. Yeah. Um, the cultural impact of incarceration on people is tangible. It's very real. Mm. And he, he passed away about eight years ago, but mm. it was definitely something he dealt with. Um, primarily how to manage conflict because there's a very specific attitude needed in prison to kind of get around that stuff. But he, there's that stuff, but also it's a lot of like really interesting life experience. And a lot of people when I've been successful or they think I've been successful, they'll say, you know, you broke the the cycle. And it's like, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, he gave me a lot of the game that's helped me succeed and I'm just doing the same things he did, but I'm just navigating it legally mm -hmm. without, you know, kind of running up against the, um, uh, the guardrails. And honestly, uh, he was doing drug trafficking, um, with marijuana and he, what he's doing, what he was doing is what people around here do now all the time. And they're considered, you know, like cultural leaders and things like that, but it's different. And he, yeah, he got bumped in, uh, in Northeast Texas in yeah. like 1989 or 1990. I could be getting the days wrong, but mm -hmm. yeah. Dang. So like, how old were you when he came to? 13. So is that was like, did kids find out about that at all? Or how was that? Uh, you mean kids around my neighborhood? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little bit. Um, and so my brother and I actually just talked about this. This mm. is good timing. Um, the. I eventually, or initially I was like, I don't want to tell anybody because a lot of times when you tell people things about your family, they mm. automatically kind of, kind of transfer whatever that is good or bad towards you. Yeah. So if my dad was Howard Schultz, I'd be like, oh, Matt's got money. Or if your dad's in prison, it's like, you know, Matt's kind of a fuck up. And so I tried to kind of hide it, but then I decided not to. And mm. I just was transparent with people. And that has changed over the years and it's just not at this point it's a very uncomfortable uh topic to cover like at work yeah and people are like you know hey Melissa, what was your dad doing around this time when you were this age and it's like i don't want to tell them yeah because it, it, a lot of times it elicits kind of like a pity response and it just, it just i can't take it i i just i don't identify as a victim in any sort of way i i did not go to prison he mm. did and Honestly, he's so much more, or he was so much more than, than going to prison. Yeah. And to, I certainly wouldn't want to be, you know, my life to be defined by six years of my life. And, you know, I would extend the same courtesy to him. Mm -hmm. Okay. I love that answer. Good. So what school did you go to when you were growing up? Uh, I went to uh, Voyager Middle School. Okay. And then I went to Mariner High School. Okay. No Mariner High School. And then I went to ACES, which is an alternative high school for a good portion of my senior year. Is that in Everett too? It is. Is that still around? I believe so. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then you ended up going to college. We were short by one credit. Was that yeah. in-state or out-of-state? That was Everett Community College. Okay. Cool. And while I was there, um, I did like a general academic transfer. Um, and I spent a lot of time uh, as an English tutor while I was there. And this was right after 9-11. Mm. So a lot of the, um, there's a lot of money going to local people who were laid off or displaced from from the air, aerospace industry. Mm. So a lot of the people I was going or doing these, um, these tutoring sessions with were old Boeing people. 
and they did not want to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not want to be there. They did not give a shit. Yeah. And so, yeah, that was a that was a good experience for me. Um, sharpen my game a little bit with the writing and things like that. Yeah. So then, when did you start writing at all for music related stuff? Uh, I started writing in music for about in about two thousand three, so about the same time. Okay. And I had started working a graveyard job, hmm. and it was three tens. So I was on graveyard three days off four days. And a lot of people that do that are able to switch schedules in the interim period between the next time they have to work and I never could. So I would wake up at like 9 30, 10 o'clock at night, and no one's awake. Everyone or they're doing something I don't really want to do, like drink or like, hey, we're at Applebee's. It's like, cool, have fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm good. And so I thought to myself, I really need to get a hobby or I'm going to go crazy. Mm-hmm. And we started, or I started to kind of focus on music. I was interested in how it was made. I was familiar with some local artists at the time, like a Boom Bat Project, who I liked a whole lot and really liked their their styles. Like Jake did a lot of their stuff along with yeah. other like local legends like him and, and Vitamin and Bean One and stuff like that. And then I got a computer. I bought an E-Machines computer, which is a very cheap one and i spent like 400 bucks on a credit card and put free loops on it hmm. and then i started you know dabbling around and i don't think i let anyone hear anything i made until 2006 but you started as beat as beating and making beating you started doing beats before writing then no, or no, you were doing I, both. I, this, or you were like rapping and no, I was I was just doing beats. Okay. I, w- I would sometimes write, um, just because I enjoyed the process of it. Yeah, but nothing like I think I I rapped a song on Hip Hop EJ once, which was a program you can make beats on. And yeah. it's just it's awful, but yeah, um, I'm I'm very glad that those none of those files like, files exist anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a spur of the moment kind of decision to like get into it, or was this something that you like were kind of interested in when you were growing up, and then you just never thought of. I was interested in music and I was interested in how it's made. Hmm. And my dad got me a guitar when I was like 14 and I never had the patience to learn it. Hmm. And as I got older, I started to really appreciate rap music and production specifically and groups like Boom Bap, um, Dilated Peoples, Hmm. um, a very specific type of like kind of West Coast um, underground rap type thing. And I wanted to figure out how it was done. So I did some research. I learned about records. I learned about sampling and digging in the crates and slowly kind of built that up. And it was one of those things where it was a hobby at first. Yeah. But that first time you you do something that that's good or is at least good or has something good about it, mm. it's kind of like it just it pulls me towards it to do it more. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I would just kind of like have these little miniature breakthroughs and it would just give me enough, you know, gas in the tank to make it to the next part and you know like 20 years later here i am fuck yeah so was your was that graveyard chip the fraud stuff or were you yes doing, okay so I, how'd you get involved with fraud so i was working at uh costco okay. uh silver lake costco and everett and um my friend luke said you know what i don't think i want to pull carts anymore and it's like it's great in the summer but in the other like eight months of the year not so much but that's like, a job to yeah. just pull the carts right? yes it's a job and during the summer, it's like probably the best job I've ever had in the <laughs> summertime. And yeah, and then you get a hot dog for like a buck fifty for lunch. Yeah. It's very cost um, cost effective. But he said he had a, a job. Uh, one of his neighbors, and this is the thing about knowing people, uh, one of his neighbors uh, worked at a company that would take inbound calls from people who had lost their debit card. 
And then uh, aside from that, they would manage a queue of high-risk transactions. So he asked me if I wanted to do it. I interviewed, I got the job, and then I started learning how to look for risk. And the guy who actually taught me how to do that, I helped actually catch him doing fraud like about six months later because he learned all the tricks on how to do it. Oh my God. And yeah, he started, he started, uh, he started, uh, you know, swiping cards, scamming cards. And I kind of had like a, kind of like a small suspicion, suspicion mm-hmm. because like we weren't making tons of money, but he started like, he had like a Gucci belt on and things like that. I'm like, hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like you are not subtle. And yeah. So we, I never want to, you know, just given my um, experience with incarceration, I never want to send people to jail. I look at more of it. I look at it more like a game of ping pong, mm. like who can get past who. And yeah, that's that's how I learned to enjoy it. That's wild. That's like a movie. Yeah, it that. was. Whoa. Yeah. I feel like the only experience I personally had had with fraud was like when I was what probably like 16 my mom got me these gift cards yeah. for my birthday and i tried to scan them and someone had already used them so i think there was like an era in like the 2010s where like people would like scan gift they'd walk past a gift card thing and like scan the code somehow and then wait until someone would actually enter the code and then they would like activate. oh so they would so i would scan the card uh, in the store, you would get the card, you would enter the activation pin, and then since I have the card, it would assign the funds to me. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. That's slick. I love scams. <laughs> I love scams. A good scam is like my favorite. It's like a good wine. It's like, yeah, but it sucks for me. I was like, damn, yeah. I was going to get some new sh-. It was crazy because I had to go all the way to, there was only a Nike outlet store in North Bend mm-hmm. at the time that I would go to, and that was yeah. like 30 or 40 minutes away from me. Yeah. So I had like my family drive me there and we try to use the gift card and like it didn't fucking work. And I was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, gift card. Um, a big thing with gift cards was to like, I would log into like your online banking mm. and you would have a credit card and you would have your reward points. And a lot of times they didn't put a lot of controls around the reward points because mm. it's not monetary. So there's not like, it's it's hard to quantify a loss and to justify the, the controls. And we just started people were losing like probably like hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in reward points, like Damn. equivalent cash that were t- being turned into gift cards because you could just get them digitally and people were getting them digitally and then selling them. And it's like Amazon and Apple, like the high, high value ones, Nike. Mm. But yeah, it's, it is fun because fraud changes so much in the last every year and just m- keeping up, up on all of those things is is hard yeah but it's also it's like there's a new problem pretty much every year to solve yeah are there different fraud departments though like what part of the sure so i've i initially worked um as a fraud portfolio manager um at a big bank i don't want to list their name because Mm. they could see if i'm snitching and then you know (laughs) me for it but i i was basically the guy who steered the ship um for the digital payments so um, Zelle, um, mm. I help launch Zelle. Um, wow. I help launch Apple Pay, um, online wires. I help launch that. Uh, some other things, Touch ID, I help okay. launch that. And so basically just identifying what are the best ways that we could get ripped off and what things could we do to not get ripped off mm. and what is the balance of priority to choose which one is the most important and what's the most, where can we get the most juice 
from the small squeeze. Mm. And yeah, so I did that. I've, I did something similar um, at a, a large technology company <laughs> in Seattle. And um, I did like machine learning uh, fraud modeling, mm. which is um, very dry work, but it's, it's very fulfilling when it works. It's like, so it's like you're training AI how to... Yes. Mm -hmm. And we had a good hit rate. And honestly, it was too stressful. Mm. And as I was... Like my, like when I was younger, I really enjoyed the high stress stuff, and you know I kind of gravitated toward those roles and launching big products, and that was definitely a part of it. But as I've gotten older and I've been more involved in music, I want to be more involved with my daughter, mm -hmm. and I just don't have the personal bandwidth to do that kind of stuff. So I've actually I've taken I've taken a demotion mm -hmm. um, recently, and I work in um, fraud servicing. So what that means is like if you have a claim if you just if you have a claim of fraud or something to that effect i help write the procedures on how to manage that mm. and that's a lot less um exciting than what i've done in the past but just like where i'm at in life right now that's that's where i need to be do you know much about those like you know when to like sometimes log in you have to say what those jumbled up numbers or letters yes. are do you understand like what that actually is because yeah. i have no idea why you do like it's, people have to do that it is image recognition so what they're doing is they're looking they're just randomly pulling images and they have like this humongous like portfolio of things to pull from and they can tell from an image just based on like the the colors and the pixelation that you know this is likely a bus or this is likely a crosswalk and then they'll be able to put that together and have you demonstrate that you have critical thinking skills mm -hmm. and that you're not just a robot just because automation and bot automation for fraud is a huge deal. Hmm. Wait, so why can't bots figure out what's a fire truck? Because, honestly, I don't know. That's a great question. Um, I know they can't. The majority of my focus on controls there are like two-factor authentication, like getting the, the codes into your phone. Mm -hmm. And that and the inherent vulnerabilities that are associated with it have been a big focus of mine in the last 10 years. Wait, there's negatives to it? two-way two authentication yeah. have you ever um lost your phone and oh, had to right. get a new one yeah yeah sim swap huge deal um that people porting so sim swap is like not changing carriers but just going from phone a to phone b mm. and porting is saying that you know blake's phone is now a t-mobile but now he wants to go to verizon mm. and sim swap has mm, fewer controls and porting actually is a lot easier than it should be because there's legislation that came out uh, like 15 years ago because the companies, uh, the mobile network operators were making it very difficult to port. Mm -hmm. And you would have to jump through all these hoops because they don't want to let the business go. Yeah. So they, I think uh, Elizabeth Warren put forth the uh, legislation to like streamline that entire process and give them like a bar that they need to meet for that process. Wait, so, but do you, you recommend like two-way authentication apps? Yes, I yeah. do. I do. I, I recommend the ones that you keep on your phone. Yeah. Um, I also recommend for companies to have the controls to identify those like porting issues or sim swap issues and things like that because if you don't they're gonna people are gonna run rough shot on you real fast mm -hmm. like we saw that with zell the first year or two damn yeah what do you think what about like do you understand what's going on with these like the cash app scams <laughs> i don't understand mm -hmm. how any of that works so basically um those a lot of those scams are people providing, um, saying they're providing services. Like say for instance, you're looking for someone to write you a resume and you go to 
um, like Craigslist or whatever the you know modern equivalent, and they say that they're going to do it. They ask you to cash app in advance. You cash app. They don't provide you anything. Um, a lot of times there are like this is a big music one where let's say I pretended to be me and mm -hmm. I said, hey, you know, I was nominated for a Grammy once. I can help you get in the music industry. But in order to do this, you need to pay to secure a spot or and then they pay and I don't deliver anything. Or there were people that would offer management deals in music um, where you would have to pay them five hundred dollars a month or back in like even longer. There were people who would let you perform at shows mm. and they say, yeah, if you want to perform at this show, you have to buy you have to buy like five hundred dollars worth of tickets. Yeah. So just lots of scams like that. Just digitally I've seen rappers like famous rappers do that. Like oh, some, yeah. some of my friends, too. That's fucked. Yeah. I think um, I remember one of the most profound things Jake one has ever said is that, you know, you're um, you know, you're a tenured season, a hip hop producer is if a rapper's tried to scam you, or I think that's what he said, or if you've, you're owed money by Baby Grand Records, <laughs> and I'm both, so <laughs> I, I got my stripes. Yeah, I think that once, it's like the, I remember one time, one of my favorite rappers growing up uh, called me, said he wanted to talk about music, and mm. I call up, and you know, he's talking to me, and I kind of get the vibe that he's like, kind of like spinning, like he's getting like in a sales mode, you know? Mm. And he tried to sell me into a, um, uh, a multi-level marketing thing, like an Amway <laughs> or Herbalife. And he's really aggressive about it too. And I I, I just felt sorry for him. Like, yeah. Yeah, so. Dude, that happened to me when I was like, uh, I ended up not doing anything with it, but like when I was like 18, 18 19, mm -hmm. um, I, uh, where was I? I was somewhere in Bellevue mm -hmm. and this guy came up to me and started talking to me and said he wanted to like, meet up t for um like lunch at this like cafe yeah to talk business <laughs> and i had no idea what the fuck was going on right so i go i go home and i tell my family i'm like oh my god i'm so excited this random guy in this business suit was like he was like you seem like a cool guy we should work together and we should meet at this cafe at this specific time and then my stepdad was like Dude, I work in the building at the top of this building that he's trying to have you meet people at, and that's that cafe is where people try to do like <laughs> MLK, wait, M, what it, multi level MLM, yes. like meeting, like scams with people. MLM, yeah. So I was like, if my, and I was like, I was so ready to drive back sure. to Bellevue to meet this random guy, even though I had no idea. Like, and I just told him, just, I just told my stepdad some like key words of what the guy was telling me. He's mm -hmm. like, Blake, do you not know what's going on right now? I reached out on the MySpace days to one of my favorite artists. He was like an 80s dance artist mm -hmm. um, that I really enjoyed. And I sent like a little paragraph, says, you know, I'm a real big fan of your music. Thank you. I really enjoyed listening to it. Mm -hmm. And he responds, thanks. Have you ever considered about unlimited income sources? I'm like, no. Uh... <laughs> he tried to sell me into a real estate um, pyramid scheme. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. the it, it's It's just one of those things where... I understand what leads people to do it. Um, like, you know, people typically that are attracted to those are not in a good position financially. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but at the same time, a scam's a scam. Yeah. And when they, I would tell people the more dignified thing to do would be to sell drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. What keeps you in like, what kept you in doing fraud, to work in fraud? Uh, the intersection of experience and money. So I, 
get the most money for doing what I do because I've been doing it for a long time. Mm. It's easy. I can do it. I don't want to say with my eyes closed, but with a lot less effort than I would if I learned something that new mm -hmm. and it's just comfortable. And I don't consider myself a careerist with it by any stretch. I do what I need to do to support my family and my passions, including music. Yeah. So I don't want to become really like a manager or, you know, become an executive. I actually was offered like, like indirectly offered a job at TikTok. Um, yeah. That would be like a bigger fraud job. And like they gave me a big number. I'm like, oh man, shit, I can't turn that down. But then I thought about the reality day in, day out. And it's like, no. Yeah. What do you think about like, um, I, I had a, uh, I, it was like, it was like for like a whole week, these people came in to record at the studio, mm -hmm. um, to do like, it was a mixture of podcasting slash voiceover work for this documentary on the um fuck what was that movie squid game coin yes or whatever mm -hmm. like have you or would you ever want, be interested in like following like a big case and like supporting a huge case or something like that i've done that okay and wow. i've i can't speak on any other cases of mm -hmm. course but yeah i um like i've seen cases that are like a and um just trying to navigate that and it's one of those things where it's like it's a few things failing at the same time that allow for something really big to happen. Yeah. And yeah, just, it's all about learning every single thing you can about the process to lead up, led up to the error. And then from that point on learning how you can fix it and prioritizing it because yeah. you're going to have to tell like the people way up the, the, the ladder, what the problem is and how you can fix it. They don't give a shit about the details. They just want to know what it is. How long will it take to fix it? How much will it cost? Yeah. So really boiling it down to those like fine points is a skill that's, you know, served me well. Mm -hmm. Wait, how does fixing a fraud end up costing money? Because so, of time, man hours or something? Uh, yeah, man hours specifically. So let's say that um, a lot of times, um, can I go nerdy on you just for a second? Yeah, for okay. sure. So a lot of times when uh, a transaction you make on like a bigger site, is going through a fraud review like you click um, send order or submit order and it's going through the back end it's taking the order details and it's going to put it through like a funnel for fraud and that funnel has what's called a so that means if you do not or if they are unable to perform the fraud check within like i don't know like half a second then they skip the fraud check so mm -hmm the fraud community is aware of this so what they'll do is they'll um they'll overload the system so they're introducing more latency just due to the gross sum of um transactions and that's that's how they push the latency that should be like if the latency's here the the ceiling but how do you check for here. fraud by the way you check for fraud if like a card doesn't work correctly or what do you fraud mean? or an mo specifically right. so uh, not everything is card based but right. for the card stuff um a lot of it is there's only there's like a there's no glass there's like a glass ceiling with cards because there's so many controls with the chips and there's like ai models that are able to assess the general risk of a transaction um, based on how much it is your spending patterns and all that stuff but for a lot of that stuff we find the mo like we find out what's the process that they're going through so mm. if it's a bunch of accounts that are um using like a free email service from like China, like mm. 167.com. And we have, we usually get like two of those a day and then we get like 20,000 in one day. It's like, 
okay, that's something. So finding things like that, just finding some sort of pattern that is clear. Got it. Okay, that's interesting shit. Damn. And has this helped in music at all? Like, has this helped maybe with deals or just life experience? Or Mm, it's helped finance my musical endeavors, and it's helped me. One of so I I probably could have started working exclusively on music about five years ago, but I realized a couple things. One, if I don't have structure, my life crumbles Mm. it's like if i don't have like a day-to-day structure i'm I'm fucked Mm. and having the ability um like this goes both ways having the ability to say no to doing music is very powerful but also having music as an option to say no to work is also very powerful so having both is a like daily rhythm that i'm very accustomed to and yeah it's just it's financing my goals and my goals are helping relieve the pressure of having a day-to-day job that's an interesting take that to be able to say no to music that's wow yeah and so i um a couple years ago i did a bigger song and there's a lot of pressure around it and people were wanting a lot of things people were offering me money and it was around it was during covid so like a lot of people i was dealing like with depressive issues um related to covid and other things um in my life and i just lost my motivation for it Mm. and if i if i had made music my number one or my primary income source and my sole income source um it would have been really hard to wake up and try and do it and i figured if i'm going to do something i don't want to do i'm going to go to my cushy day job and i'm going to stay there but you know as i get older i also appreciate having more time especially my friends who do music like at a level a little bit higher than I do, but similar enough and they don't have to work. I'm like, man, shit. I'm I'm missing out, but we'll get there. Yeah. Damn. That is such a grass is always green on the other side type Mm -hmm. thing to think about. Cause I feel like a lot of people feel like I can't wait to quit my day job and just focus on music. But then also, I guess I'm not trying to be like dark, but then you have to think about like, how long is an actual musician's career usually mm-hmm. too? Yeah. You know? Well, I'm not making as much as I did like four years ago. Mm. And a lot of that's based on the fact that I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. But I also live in an incredibly expensive area. I live in the Seattle area. I have a daughter. I have a wife uh, who's the primary caretaker of our child. And I'm the primary breadwinner. Mm. So the impact of not doing that is is far beyond me and i'm going to be very candid with you a lot of the people who do music as their as their main thing financially are are to the detriment of others so Mm. you have someone that's picking up the slack for you and what your limited earning potential and these are situations like um, significant others with kids and things like that and i understand the allure i understand the the drive but it's not always like a a smooth transition a lot of times someone else has to like they have to accommodate your your choice by making Mm -hmm. more money and having less of it that's a good point too damn i've known a lot of people like that through Mm -hmm. music like in the last 20 years yeah probably the percentage of actual people who like don't like they don't have to worry about or don't it isn't like detriment, it's not a detriment to others is probably that's probably the actual true like one percent of types yeah of it's very musicians. small like i've 
I've, I think I have over a billion streams mm. and I still have a day job. So. Yeah. That's wild. Mm -hmm. So when was the first, uh, where was, where, when was your, your first milestone as a producer? Um, big tunes, 2006. Um, and so it's Beat Battle put on by John Moore, rest in peace, Jake One, um, DV One, Vitamin D, and uh, Marcus Lolario, who owns a lot of businesses around the city now. And Yeah, I, he's about to come on the show. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Good. He's going to be a great guest. Fuck yeah. Um, so the I sent some beats in, to, and they said, yep, we're cool. You can participate. You can um, perform. And I was so nervous, and I, um, I didn't really know how to, like, move my body <laughs> like when you're like because you know the beat bells people are like well, the mean mug or something like mm. that and i just did this thing where i was like i was nervous so i kind of kept my arms tight and yeah. but I, I moved my neck where i'm like <laughs> <laughs> you can find it on youtube it's terrible <laughs> some of the things people have said about me in the comments are just oh, no. brutal <laughs> but i read it sometimes to humble me <laughs> and I ended up losing, but I was going against uh, a production team named Black and Brown. Mm. And I actually just talked to Brown for the first time in about 15 years today. Wait, so are you uh, DJing your beats? Yeah, okay, you just sit it. in front of like a, a CDJ, you put your CD in, you play the beat, and the crowd says, yay, or the crowd says, mm. But I got one that got a real big response, and that was that was amazing to experience. But... Yeah, I went up against um, Black and Brown. Uh, Black was Damian Black, who's now known as Nassim, who's an mm. Orthodox Jewish artist. Nassim Black, yeah. Yeah, and he and Brown both moved to Israel, and That's they both crazy. live there now. So it was nice to connect with, with him. But That's fucking awesome. And he's from Seattle, too. That's wild. I've wanted to have that guy on my show. It was so crazy. Um, I have no idea. Like, it's so crazy like how fast platforms, if they wanted to, like Netflix and Hulu, mm -hmm could put out content if they really wanted to mm -hmm. so basically i kid you not i hope i'm not exaggerating here but like i kid you not within at least two weeks to a month of the fucking kanye um, controversy there was a hulu special out about it and um Nissan black was on it and it was crazy that's awesome yeah but it, it's so yeah it's it's cool to see that like he, I knew yeah. him when he was like 19 or 20. And Damn. even then you could tell he was like, he was the leader. Mm. He was the leader among his friends. And I would see John Moore talking to him, not as a kid, but like as basically the little homie that's mm. on his way up. So yeah, he, he was a big deal. So I, I lost that battle. It was all good. And I met a lot of people that night for the first time. I met Jake, uh, John, um, Vitamin. I met Malcolm Moore for the first time that mm. night. I met Eric G, um, producer who's with Ninth Wonder in them now. Mm. Um, Devon Manor from Sport and Life Records, Jay Pender, and just on and on and on. And, you know, I got to develop some solid connections with people I've already known, like Sobzi from The Scholars, Smoke from Old Dominion, and people like that. So, yeah, that was a big change because it made me really think, you know, because I've been operating in a silo the mm. entire time and having people react in person was just I, I wanted to do it more and more so i did big tunes for like three or four years after that and i think i won one battle dang i got i got my ass beat the rest of the time but i had a lot <laughs> of fun that's cool so what made you decide to start exploring like the seattle music scene well um so i had a friend um i have a friend named lewis cam who's brilliant brilliant person um all across the board and he was aware of local groups um, that were doing a big thing in like 2006. And it was 
Blue Scholars, um, Geo and Sabzi, and Common Market, which was Ross Sion and Sabzi. And they were doing a show at Numos. Mm -hmm. And he invited me to come. And I went, they had a live band and everything. And I remember just thinking to myself, wow, this is all happening like right outside my doorstep. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea. Because a lot of the Everett stuff um, wasn't in alignment with what I liked. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was like a bunch of like, like trashy white folks doing like bone thugs in harmony and yeah. like it's like I'm, I'm good but yeah. i ended up getting connected with them and developing those relationships um primarily with ross Sion um and his family and that was a big deal for me he let me make music for uh, a bumper shoot performance he did which like i got to hear my beat played for like seven thousand people Damn. um actually was working at expedia at the time so i took a two-hour lunch break to go from bellevue to bumper shoot to listen to and then get right back on the road but yeah so working getting those connections and realizing i'm not as good as i thought i was and getting humbled and then just receiving good advice from all of those people like uh, like beats for beats specifically from sabzi mm -hmm. he gave me a lot of uh, very positive feedback and also some criticisms that were that were warranted for sure mm -hmm. and do you you can say no if you and this is your genuine feeling to no, this is just a one man's opinion. Have you has have you felt like the Everett music scene has grown at all since since you moved to Everett and got involved with music? Or how do you feel about like yes, the North End? It has. Okay. Um uh one artist in particular is um his name's Aurelio and he's um from the same area of Everett than I am. For people who listen or are listening, I grew up my first five years in Everett were on Center Road, which is along 4th between 112th and 128th. That's a very specific part of Everett. And he's from that area. And there's a very large uh, community there of people from Mexico and from South America, and he represents that community. And he's got a lot of, he has a lot of um, movement around him and the people that are around him, they really look to him as a leader. And I'd like to be involved with this project. I've talked to him a little bit. and you know, connect him with like-minded people that I've worked with over the years, like Geo or Bamboo mm -hmm. and people like that. Um, there's another artist whose name I am having a hard time remembering who had an album cover in front of 7-Up Grocery, which is a mm -hmm. very specific place in Everett as well. So um, I liked his stuff. And mm -hmm. yeah, so I think so. There is, nice. I think it's one of those things where people are still kind of cutting their own um, identity. But I would say Aurelio is probably the... Um, the most authentic representation of where I grew up mm -hmm. right now. And he definitely is, he'll do, he'll do very good things. I'm sure. Fuck. Yeah. So is it important for you to still like learn more about like up and coming artists or the artists you've worked with? Like you could just stick to like working with logic or whoever, mm -hmm. you know, I have to learn, I have to do the new stuff. So when I first started, um, um, I, the first person I worked with locally after a big lapse was Malcolm Rebel, rest mm -hmm. in peace. I worked with him on a song called Still Trappin' with, um, with Eric G. And I don't know how I got connected um, with Travis Thompson, but mm -hmm. I did a few songs on his album cover um, called You Good, or the album with You Good where he's holding the, the newspaper on fire. And then I did one on his, um, his first epic album. So uh, staying connected with them. Um, I think um, Campana, I think that's his name. Campana, yeah. Campana. Yeah. He, I, I didn't work with him directly, but one of his uh, producers sampled my stuff, and mm -hmm. I came across it, listening to his stuff, and I was really impressed with with what they did. Because you have a, you have the beat pack thing. I, I do the sample packs. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's 
like my main thing. Uh, well, it was. I don't really do them as much anymore. Mm. Um, but it's I, I try to stay connected. I reach out to people. Um, like, And I also give people their flowers mm. um, when I can. Like I tell people often, like, when I think about like the producers coming up in Seattle, um, I think of uh, Chung the Nomad, without a doubt. Um, in my opinion, she's like, she is good at the beats, like really good at the beats, but she's also a great performer and a lot of people can't do both. So yeah. that's really unique. Um, bass Kids. Um, I was, what, I heard about Bass Kids from Joseph DeFinci, who's a producer and he did like Freestyle for Little Baby, which is like a huge song. So when people like in Atlanta are telling me about someone here, like that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I heard about Bass Kids from him. Um, Callan, who did uh, Blueberry Fago for Lil Mosey. Mm -hmm. And of course, the pride of Federal Way, Kid Culture, who is amazing. He did a Justin Bieber. Um, he did a Justin Bieber, Bieber song. He did a bunch of Damn. Corday songs. And he's super talented. And he's starting to come out as an artist now too um, and perform on his own, which is great. But yeah. I like to stay in touch. I like to listen to new beats, but you know, all within the confines of my time, of course. Mm -hmm. So that was your first, you talked about your first milestone of like being part of the mm -hmm. community. What was your first musical milestone where you like landed with an artist? Probably my work with Ross Sion, okay, um, because cool. at the time common market was a huge deal. Um, they were selling out new on a regular basis. They were touring and you know, Ra's always been a really, really, really talented artist. He still is. He's still putting out great music. And working with him validated a lot of my work and gave me proximity to a lot of the artists I still know today, like Gio, um, mm. uh, Grinch, um, Feo Luciano, who I did a bunch of songs with, and people like that. So, yeah, um, that was my working with him. I did an album with him called Victor Shade mm. uh, in like 2011 or so. And we got on some some good list on like KXP and Amazon Music into the year list and being able to do like a full album um, front to back was was very validating. Mm. So how has growing your brand worked for you? Like, do you do a lot of press? Do you budget when you're releasing a song or like how have you been able to work with like these bigger artists in the music industry like a Trippy Red, a Logic, Grip, all these guys? I like grip. Grip's good stuff. Um, I've done three interviews in Conway. 20, too. <laughs> I've done three interviews in twenty years. Damn. So not press. Um, <laughs> uh, also, including this one, and I really, I think it's about thinking about who you are selling things to. Who's your intended audience? So, for people who are doing beats, their intended audience is the artist. So they want the artist to create songs so they can sell it, make royalties, get paid. For me, I'm selling samples and loops to those producers mm. so it's less of a business to consumer model it's a business to business model mm. so the only way to really cut through and to work with people like that is to provide a significant value add to them and what they're doing so a lot of people will send loops and things like that it's mid it's not that good but if you are undeniable and you just like hone your shit and you got like a clip of like 30 or 40 things in it and you send that over, they're going to want to keep working with you. Mm -hmm. So for me, what's worked for me is to maintain a lower profile because a lot of people don't want to share the limelight. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's understandable. They're like, it's not like when I sample like a Curtis Mayfield song from like 1975, I want to be like, oh, and Curtis Mayfield over here, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, being, being comfortable, being kind of in the corner and quiet mm-hmm. has been a big part of it. And just, yeah, it's a volume game. So being easy to work with, um, being quiet and putting yourself um, around the people and being open to working with people who may not be big yet, but, you know, grow up to do like, or, go on to grow to do amazing things mm-hmm. how like when did you decide to do the sampling packs like what year was that so um i'm gonna give you a little bit of back i'm gonna backtrack a little bit yeah, before sure. that so um and about 2013 or 14 i had been going uh to new york to uh shop beats and i was going to like the g unit and people like that so you met did you like Go take one ever. It seems like no. He did the same thing. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, he did the he did the same thing. He he did it much better than I did. <laughs> but I was still I was going to the same places yeah. and and yeah, I didn't. Jake didn't do that connection. Hmm. Um, and he didn't he didn't have to because I always looked to what he and John did. Um, like they didn't have like a Jake around to help kind of guide their hands. Mm-hmm. So that's not to say like I didn't get on MySpace back in the day, like Jake, put me on, please. <laughs> it's embarrassing. But um, yeah, so I was I was going and I was working with these people, sending beats to bigger mm-hmm. artists and it just stopped happening. Uh, people stopped responding to my messages yeah. um, and I would go to New York and people would ghost me and when I was working there and, you know, I started to, it started to really mess with my like self-worth because I, put a lot of my identity and value into my success as a producer mm. and I eventually just stopped to say you know what I did not meet my goal mm. my goal was to do this I did not reach it I'm very happy with the stuff I've done but if you want to just be very explicit with the goal I felt and that's okay I didn't feel that immediately but I kind of came to terms with that so I um I got a PlayStation um I started going to the gym uh, Tinder just came out and I was single. So I was, you know, going on dates and stuff like that. Things I wouldn't normally do, um, mm-hmm. you know, being hunkered down, making beats all day. And it kind of gave me a chance to live life and kind of refill my music battery. And, you know, I was with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And I was talking about trying to ramp up and do the music thing again. She says, well, why don't you just do it for fun? Mm. Like, why don't, do you really need to achieve like X level of success to do this and to enjoy it? And I'm like, no. So I started doing it for fun. Uh, one of the people I knew from back in the day was named Frank Dukes. He goes by Ging now. And he did, like, um, Congratulations by Post Malone. He mm. did Havana by Camila Cabello. He did, like, Damn. like he's, like, he's the, he's the, he's the man. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of his bigger songs, but he's mm. gone, like, Diamond, like, three times. Yeah. So he was doing the sample packs, and he was doing really well, and it was exciting. It was exciting to hear someone that could emulate the sounds of, like, the 70s and 80s very, very well. So I started to kind of dip my toe in a little bit and I got better and better and better until like a few people started reaching out to me. And like, I think Static Selecta reached out to me Damn. and um, I think Jake reached out to give me a thumbs up uh, very early on that um, say they liked what I was doing. Yeah, he had a, he had a beat that he used my stuff called from EVT to the world mm-hmm. and I lost that. I still don't have it. I'm gonna have to ask him to see if he's got that <laughs> for me, but yeah, so just slowly doing that, and then I put out the sample packs, mm. and um, my first one. And the reason I decided to do that was I had all of these things, and I was looking to monetize them because my wife was in her second year of her doctorate program, and we were pretty slim off money. It's like, 
I think I can sell these maybe. Yeah. And I was walking my dog Gizmo, rest in peace Gizmo. Mm. And I was in Ballard at the time where I lived. And I thought, I could do this. What should I call it? I'm just called Crabtree Music Library because that's my name. Mm. And then that happened and I released stuff and we started to really perform well. And we would scale with each release or I would scale with each release. And I started to, you know, make more money, get more acknowledgement. And then I'm hearing from people that like the kits. And a lot of the times you think it's just regular kids buying them, but there's a lot of like really established people. And one of the first people I heard that liked my stuff was Madlib. Uh-huh. And so Madlib, that was very validating. And then eventually one of the songs from my kits um, was put out by Madlib on one of his albums and it's called Theme D. Crabtree. So he actually named it after me, which is like mind blowing. Mm. So yeah, just little, so initially the the financial incentive to, to move forward yeah. and then the acknowledgement um, from people whose opinion I hold in very high esteem and then just the new relationships that keep on building from every new person that, that buys the packs. Yeah, it seems like the time off was really like detriment, like important. To- oh, it's so, it was totally. And I honestly did that like recently too. Yeah. Um, it's it's good to just kind of recenter yourself on what's important because like for instance um i remember when i first started um we had a song that was cut off um scorpion by drake at the very mm. last minute and i was devastated mm. and i literally i did the thing where especially I, with that long of an album <laughs> <laughs> and i remember just laying face down on my bed just like Ugh, just like my whole body like doing a plank yeah and I, I, I had a few experiences like that where I came very close to like life changing songs that never happened. And it's very um, discouraging. And when I start feeling like that, it starts making me want to kind of like work harder and do things that are more tailored to like what I can what I think are success and, you know, successful songs and that, you know, adjust that uh, influences what I create and it becomes less of a fun experience and more like a job. Mm. So when I feel that happening, I start to kind of look back to where I was in 2013 when people stopped calling me when I was in New York and okay, maybe now's a good time to just step away. And I did that um, for like the second half of COVID pretty much Mm. up until like um, about a year ago when I started working with um, a guy named Section 8. Um, who's an amazing producer. Shout out to him. He's one of Lil Baby's main guys. Got it. And um, it was very exciting to work with him just because he's very talented and it's in a lane I've never been in. Mm. So how long was the first break from music? Uh, about two years. Dang. Yeah. And um, I made like 10 beats in one, one year. I put out, um, I, I, at the very end of that, I put out a, a Bandcamp album mm. called Shapeshifting Lizard Rap. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love conspiracy theories really and shape-shifting lizards is like that's some, that's some a1 shit that's that's my that's my bag what about a- the fucking do you believe in that the airplane lady who's trying to say that guy was a lizard guy no. Real? <laughs> no i don't i don't believe in any of it but it's always like it's it's like my favorite thing yeah and not my favorite thing but definitely high on the list yeah and a lot of the songs i was doing at the time um like conspiracy theories were very like a very prominent part of them mm-hmm. um, and a recurring theme. So I, my friends and I um, would jokingly refer to it as shape-shifting lizard rap. Mm-hmm. So I just went with it. And so that was like the first time where I was like, I'm going to do this for fun. And 
actually thought it was a good idea at the time to put Alex Jones clips in, <laughs> on the beats, which now I listen to it and I'm like, that was a really bad idea. It was, <laughs> it was absolutely tone deaf. Oh my but, gosh. So doing things like that kind of helped me, you know, refill my battery a little bit yeah. more. And then I made one beat and Grinch said he wanted it. And, you know, that turned to be one called Still, Still Tipsy on his last album. And I just started scaling up. And every single time a newer song would come out, like, when, when Logic people contacted me for a song called The Glorious Five, that was huge mm. because they're, you know, I, I know who he is and I know like the scale at which he operates. Yeah. So being a part of one of those albums that, you know, millions and millions of people have heard, I've never experienced that before. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge motivator. And what's it like being a fucking Grammy nominated artist? I'm going to tell you how I found out I was Grammy nominated because it's, it's not very fancy. So I started seeing people tweeting about um the grammys and you know i follow a lot of music people and the same people typically get nominated and win every year and i saw my friend um uh motif alumni who's an amazing composer and producer he posted that he had been nominated for a grammy and i hit him up like man it's amazing congratulations and then like an hour later i looked to see what he was nominated for as for a royce to five nine album called the allegory mm -hmm. and then i thought to myself oh shit I'm on that album too. Yeah. And I started thinking about it. I, like, I think that means I'm I'm Grammy nominated. Yeah. And yeah, I did a song called uh, Rhinestone Do-Rag, which is amazing because um, I never thought I'd be nominated for a Grammy for that. Mm. And yeah, it, it feels good. It's very validating. It's validating to people who may not understand what you do. Yeah. And because they understand like the significance. And yeah. The same with the Juno nomination I got yeah. with Young Gravy and, and Baby No Money. That's that's funny because that, that album... Um, also like helped propel me forward too because i had a white gold and um osmond benjamin on <laughs> and like white gold was like super popping off when that album came out because yeah. like a few months later he was on um music to be murdered by yeah. also yeah so like that got a lot of traction for yeah. me during covid that um honestly that was one of the reasons i really wanted to do the podcast is because you interviewed him oh wow <laughs> and so i got a great story about him um back in the day he we had like a, a producer community on twitter and we would do things like we would do live watches of how to catch a predator mm. and send beats and things like that and back then he was known as b-works and yeah, yeah. i had said something like oh i have this new beat anyone want to hear it it's like yeah sure send it and it was called like 80s movie mm. and he listened to it and he's like oh all right and I was really proud of it. I thought this is the one. This is back when I was like, you know, circling the drains, you know, mm -hmm. grasping at straws to try and make it. And he says, oh, do you call it 80s movie because the, the synths sound all old and shitty? It's <laughs> 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 <was> like, <laughs> oh, he, oh he's the gosh. man. He, he introduced me um, with no benefit um, to him, to someone very important. And, you know, he's also, he's an amazing artist. He's an amazing producer, always has been. So seeing him get recognition is very, it's good because yeah. he deserves it. And you've also worked with Lute, who, who they've had on also. Really? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. That's actually got a big Seattle connection to it. Because mm -hmm, of uh, Black Soul. Black Soul, yeah. Black Soul, me. So it's it's like a triangle. So yeah. I, I, I was on the song because I worked with a guy named Mel Beats, who's part of Dre's uh, circle. And part of Dre's circle also includes Black Soul. Mm. and then yeah it just all connected and we had uh, Ari Lennox and um, I think Big Big Doe from Little Brother was the mm. A&R so it's just like yeah yeah that I, was my I, one of my favorite songs on the album really yeah. awesome yeah that's fucking crazy that's so cool I like how things like start connecting more and yeah. more they um they actually the sample they used of mine 
um, they used it in a really cool way. Um, I've only, I've heard it, it was used for like a no cap song before. And it was used for um, a a trippy red song that got leaked um, Mm. with Wiz Khalifa. And yeah, but the way they did it was like completely new and independent of any of that stuff. So it was very impressive. Dang. So you've told this story before, but how did you get meet up with uh, Trippy Red? So I was contacted by someone named Hamad Beats, and he's one of the most talented producers I've probably ever met in my life. He can make, he can like level the sounds in a beat better than anyone I've ever heard. Hmm period and he contacted me um after i had heard on a trippy red instagram post that one of my samples was used and it was for a song called snakeskin and a producer blogger um youtube guy named mai hit me up was like is this yours I'm like yeah so i commented i reached out to hamad he let me know how much of my stuff he'd been working with and yeah at that point we just locked in we started doing songs we did um, Under Enemy Arms, mm-hmm. um, which is a trippy red song that honestly was going to have Young Thug on it, or does. There's a version out there with him. And then we did Everything Boz, which is um, very popular on TikTok now, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a couple others. But I've probably done like 10, 12 songs with Trippy at this point. I've never met him. Damn. I had a I had an opportunity, I think, at um, LA, when I was in L.A. one time. But you know, a lot of times artists don't really don't want to meet producers yeah. because a lot of producers don't experience the studios uh, situations very often. And like a lot of times there's like, there's people who don't, you know, give them easy access to themselves like artists or there's like, there's girls and they don't want some weirdo, you know, dude who looks like me to come in and like throw off the vibes. right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel like Trivia Road would be kind of creepy to stand next to though. He's, he's kind of wild looking. <laughs> yeah. But man, he's got, he's got a lot of, He's got a lot of very um, good-looking female friends around him. So <laughs> it's working for someone. It's working for someone. So what is your so when Jake was on, he was talking about like it's very rare that he actually ends up meeting an artist because of mm-hmm. the sampling. So is that the same yeah. situation for you? So I had an opportunity to meet um, Logic as well. Mm. Um, I met Static Selecta um, when Logic was in town and Joy Badass was opening for him. Mm. First off, Joey Badass is like this much taller than me. And I'm like yeah. six foot four, six foot five, which is amazing. But I I didn't want, I, I look at it like if I was at work, right? And someone's like, oh man, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. And running up when I'm trying to do my job, that would not make me feel very good. Mm-hmm. And so I try to uh, spare artists that that option or that, that experience because they don't know how long you're going to talk to them when you come up to them. There's like a tactful way to do it, but a lot of times I just don't, I don't need to. I can I can meet the producers, and I think the biggest artist um, that I've probably ever met still is still Macklemore, you know. Mm-hmm. And I knew him before, you know, when we were all a lot younger and not yeah. very popular. Damn. So like, what's 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 next? Also, tell me about this uh, epic rap battles thing. How did that come to be? So, um, one of those New York trips that was successful. Um, I went to a beat battle and I won it, and this woman did not introduce herself came up to me it's like how many samples are in what you use i'm like uh, this stuff's none she's like oh okay and it turns out she worked for a television company uh called jingle punks and through jingle punks i got that through my friend rhythm j um shout out to him and i started to develop like a portfolio of songs on there and um i did songs for like uh 
telenovelas on uh, Telemundo, um, sports shows and all these things and really kind of like building my uh, repertoire of songs. Okay. And uh, Trippy Red, or not Trippy Red, uh, Rhythm J hit me up and said, are you familiar with Epic Rap Battles of History? Mm. No, I have yeah. no idea what it is. And then I look at the videos like, holy shit, like, there's like 100 million views on these songs. Mm. And they told me that they were working on one for um, Mr. T and Mr. Rogers. And I had like 45 minutes before I had to go do something. And I sat down. I'm like, I'm going to finish this in 20 minutes. And it's the song is based entirely around an E minor chord. And they loved it. They used it. And I sent off for a lot more that didn't get used. Um, Epic Lloyd is one of the guys who make it. And he um, he did some other videos where he would like diss your boss um, on a song. <laughs> I did a couple of those. So, yeah. I did it. Um, I didn't get any like residuals. I just got like a flat fee. So I mm. got it, spent the money, whatever, didn't think about it. And then during that time when I had quit, I got hit up by um, the people at Maker Studios who do those. They say, what's your address? We got a gold plaque for you. Damn. I'm like, and this is what right after they started letting YouTube views factor into plaques. And I got it and I didn't tell anybody about it. And I just kind of like snuck a picture. I like, look what I got. <laughs> but yeah, they're... Um, they're good people and that's it came about very um it was not forced it was very easy and yeah those guys were good people to work with especially epic what i dealt with him the most mm. seems like you've had a fulfilling for career do you, do you feel like you've had one yes that's absolutely okay. um i think that my proudest one of my proudest moments in music was doing a song with madlib timbaland and 808 mafia in the same month that's wild. Yes. And I was very, very proud of that and proud of doing things differently. I think that being able to create music that people care about is is really rewarding. Um, but, you know, of course, it's, it's about me, what I care about more than anything. So I did a drum and bass song um, recently with Nile Rodgers on it mm -hmm. from Cheek, which is like mind blowing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, things like that uh, just remind me that I'm lucky that the last 20 years of my life have not been in vain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's, it has been very fulfilling. And I just, I, the things that kind of move the needle for me now are not like necessarily the success things. It's about trying to figure out problems. And that problem could be like, I've never known how to make a new Jack swing beat. I'm going to figure that shit out. Mm. And I came very close to it last week and I'm, I just have to keep iterating on that idea. Mm. Hell yeah. That's awesome, man. You're you're dope. What is uh anything else that's coming up for you besides this new Jack Swing beat? Um, I'm gonna be launching on Tracklib okay. uh, soon, uh, which is an online sampling site. Um, so it kind of like streamlines the process of clearing samples. Um, I I'm hesitant to say anything about songs coming up because I've done that once. Hmm. And it blew up in my face, and my song got cut at the last minute. Oh man! It's from Mob Deep, actually. And um, damn, I remember um, my my girlfriend at the time and I went to go have like a celebration dinner with a couple of our friends, and I thanked Prodigy from Mob Deep on Twitter, um, like thank you for the opportunity. And then I reached out to the guy mixing it, his name Eddie Sancho. He's a legend, and he says, "Man, I'm not mixing your stuff. You got cut." And it was on oh. Twitter and all my friends saw it and just ripping me and I still hear about it to this day. Oh. So at that point I'm just like, nope. Unless until it's out, I'm not saying a yeah. damn thing. Dang. But I'd say the 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 main thing is that I keep on working, I keep on having fun. Mm. And if something comes out, great. If not, so what? You know, it's all about fulfilling me. 
I just had a song come out with Dave East and Quayla Ray yes. um, called um, Sex So Good. And I feel uncomfortable saying that because <laughs> <laughs> I'm from the Midwest. <laughs> I try to be a little bit um, humble. But yeah, that one came out. And yeah, just, just focusing on providing value to other people mm -hmm. as, a, as a composer and just letting them do all of the legwork on what happens where. My last question actually is like, I want to get your take on how you feel about this. I feel like a lot of people try to say like um, the newer generation of people are the ones who like push the, the, like the music industry forward, which is true. But mm -hmm. like when you look at the people who actually like continue to push it forward too, are the people who are, have been doing it for a while, like you. So like, what is your opinions on, cause I feel like the people like the Jake ones and people like from like the 30 to 50 year olds are the ones who are actually like making the the music for the most part I feel like and like a lot of them are the ones who have like the good like writing skills at this point mm -hmm. and know what it takes to make a, a, a good song but then there's also like the argument that like the the little Nas X's and people like that are the ones who push the music industry forward so where does where's that meet they're not mutually exclusive for sure I think that when you look at what like Jake and I do um we are in the background me much more so than him but like before Jake was in tuxedo, like you never really saw him. Like he wasn't in the videos, like going crazy mm -hmm. or nothing. And the writers are basically, we serve as the pillars to hold up the younger artist and to make their music and what they do the best they possibly can be. And the way that a lot of them are approaching the business, like Chase, um, Chance the Rapper, um, uh, people like ice spice that yeah. are um not signed to anybody really that's that's definitely moving the needle it's creating a lot more financial opportunities for people so i think it's it's both um for me i i'm in a support role and the people that are at the tip of the spear the artists and things like that they are changing how we how people consume media and mm -hmm. they're changing it in the sense that they're they are appealing to the way um, kids are now. Whereas like if I were to look at things how I, when I came up in 2003, you know, it'd be a lot different. So I think it absolutely is a big deal to let guys like me continue to contribute, but also to get the fuck out of the way and mm -hmm. let other people do their thing. So service like, it's like having, um, like you have a wobbly table and then you slide like a, a playing card under it and it's not wobbling anymore. I'm the playing card. <laughs> wow. That's my value add. Oh my gosh. And do you feel like a lot of producers think that way? Is that a, and is that a healthy way to think also? Or uh, what? It depends on what you want. Um, yeah. A lot of people are want to be known. They want to be seen. Um, a lot of producers are like doing seminars and inviting people to come and listen to them talk. And that's cool mm -hmm. like from the branding perspective, I guess. But I've never really been interested in that. Right. I think that. It's about your level and involvement and what you're comfortable with. And me personally. Um, it's family. Yeah, the family stuff, but also just doing what I want to do, like yeah. playing video games, sitting at my house, um, not being out and about in Seattle all the time. And yeah, it's, it's I think it's good if you just do what you want to do and you're authentic to yourself. And for me, keeping a lower profile is, is that. For other people, not so much. Yeah. 
Well, then I appreciate you wanting to come on the show. Thank you. Hell yeah. You, you do great work. I appreciate you. Thank I appreciate you. you having the show and for having me on. Of course. With that, what is some advice that you have for up-and-coming artists, creators, influencers? Be authentic. Um, have authentic relationships with people. Um, all the folks that are like careerists early in their 20s, they, they fade away. You know, been there, done that, seen it happen. Do what you want to do. Be Get great at it. Be authentic. You will experience some level of success. Uh, what that is really depends on what you do and how you do it. But ultimately, the end goal is to be good, to get good. And just focus on that more than any of the other social stuff, the metrics or anything like that. Just get really, really good at what you do. 100%. What is the easiest way for people to reach you? Uh, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at MTK says S-A-Y-S. And what is the what is the me the meaning behind your producer name? Oh man, that is some dumb shit I came up with when I'm 19 and it's followed me for the rest of my life. <laughs> I try to like go in through my my um my real name now um, as much as I can, but they're basically interchangeable. Okay, there we go. This is in the NAS podcast with MTK, and we did it.